Next week, we're going to finish out our Be the Movement series. And one of the things that the video expressed is one of the things that we've been in. We've been in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is basically a church history about how it was the largest religious movement in all of history. I mean, secular, Christian, everybody looks at that. It's like, that is unbelievable how that spread like wildfire. And people are like, how did that happen? How did that happen? I mean, you took a bunch of ordinary men and women who had little money and even less influence. And then literally over the course of the last 2,000 years, it's gone to every every corner of the world and including Western North Carolina, including impacting you because you're here today. The question is, how did that even happen? And what you, what we've seen over the last five or six weeks is there's really two things that are paramount in the book of Acts. And and how did this happen? How did these ordinary people get used in such an extraordinary way? Because the question then is, okay, what about me and how do I fit into this story? Number one, you see that God gave them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a mystery to a lot of people. But one of the things when you look at the book of Acts is it's all, a lot of your Bibles say the acts of the apostles, but really it could be the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit moving, orchestrating, pushing, probing, convicting, blocking throughout the book. The second thing that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks in a very clear way, and by the way, this will be the first time we ever uh, have had Good Friday services at Biltmore Church. Um, we've always, you know, it's always been a, a great day, but we've never come together, and it'll be the most unusual service we've ever done. Uh, Good Friday. We're not going to get to the tomb on Friday. Understand that? So that service is going to be very, very different, but you can't really celebrate Easter and the empty tomb until you've actually gone to the cross. And on that Friday, on Good Friday, all the campuses will come together to this campus for several services, and what we're going to do is we're going to be, we will go to the cross. We won't even get to the tomb, but then Easter we will. But Easter, what we celebrate is what was such a a convincing conviction that the early church had. And it helped them get through obstacles, helped them get through when they didn't even know how to answer questions. There's a scene in chapter 4 where Peter's like confronting these very educated people, very scholarly people, tons of degrees on the wall. And he basically goes this, he goes, I don't don't have all the answers that you all have, but I'm going to tell you, and I I respect the degrees you have on the wall, uh, but bottom line, the reason I can't be quiet about this, even though you tell us to, I respect your intelligence, I respect your degrees, but uh, I saw a person that was alive and then dead and then came back to life. And I have to pick, if I have to pick between your degrees and him coming back from the dead, uh, I'm going to pick him every time. And it gave them great, great boldness. It also helped them with obstacles. The early church really suffered greatly, much more than we in the West do at this point. Uh, You saw uh, their property was taken. You saw their families were sometimes fed to the lions. And and really, you saw tons of suffering. But they look back and I was like, if Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus is back from the dead, then he's going to figure out a way through this. And what we've been looking at is a we and a me thing. There's a we thing. We've been very much about uh, looking about the way that Biltmore Church specifically needs to align itself, reaffirm this is who we are, this is what we're about. Uh, We want to align with what the early church said. This is what you're to be aligned to. And so what we've done over the last four or five weeks and we'll finish up next week are things like, you know, we embrace the movement. We believe God's word. We pursue authentic relationships. We unify around the gospel message, not a bunch of periphery stuff. And then we'll finish next week with, I would say it's probably played the largest role in the history of our church and the way God has blessed this church. Uh, But today we're going to look at the most visible one. It's the one that has the most opinions in this room. Even it'll be the one that will hit a variety of comfort or discomfort zones And it is the idea of we passionately worship God. And when we talk about worship, uh, let me just say again, when you look at the book of Acts, even at the start of this series, I thought, okay, when we talk about this, I'm going to have to get away from the book of Acts because the book of Acts is a missional book. It's not really a worship book. It's a missional book. Now, worship is mentioned a bunch of times, but it's just mentioned. It's never explained. Uh, The closest is this one right here, and I want to use it as a challenge before we jump into the text. 
This is a challenge that I want, to, I want you to ask yourself, and then as you ask yourself the question, whatever the answer is, then push yourself uh, to understand, okay, as a disciple of Jesus, if I am a disciple of Jesus, then I've got to push myself closer to a better answer to this question. And for some of you, like, I'm not a disciple of Jesus, and you're going to understand that your first real true act of worship is actually kneeling and bowing to the lordship of Jesus. But here's the challenge. Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. You're like, where are they? Where are they? They're in church. They're not in church, okay? They're in jail. They're in jail. They are, they don't know what their future's gonna hold, and it says that they were singing and praying. Most of the time, that culture would be hanging upside down, feet in shackles, upside down, and they're praying. Now, it says at midnight, about midnight. Now, that's actually chronological time for them. For some of you, that's where you are. Not clock time, but lifetime. Uh, it's midnight for you. Midnight is when your spouse has left. Midnight is when your company of 10 years closes. Midnight is when the doctor's report comes by. And it says at midnight, this is what they were doing. It says they were praying and singing hymns to God. And here's the part I want you to be challenged by. And the prisoners, the prisoners in jail with them, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, suppose just for a second you had somebody listening to the way that you worship for the first 30 minutes this morning. The first 25, 30 minutes this morning, if somebody were to try to say, okay, this is what God is like based on the way that you worship the first 30 minutes, your engagement, your enthusiasm, your participation, your offering, your whatever, would they say, you know what, that is a great God that she serves. Bro, would they look at you and say, you know what, that guy really believes God is great and the glory belongs to Jesus? Or would they say, man, I don't know, he looks apathetic, she looks tired, she looks bored. What would they say? And what I'm going to challenge us is we're going to hit some uncomfortable zones. And I'm going to ask you, based on whatever your personality is, I know that everybody got different personalities, different upbringings. Some of you all came from extremely, extremely enthusiastic background church-wide. Some of you came from a more mainline denomination, very stiff, very, let's kind of keep all the hands inside the roller coaster at all times. Push yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, pushing it closer to what we're going to see is biblical worship. So uh, w- with that being said, uh, here's where we're going to be today. We're going to um, be in Psalm 96. We're going to be in Psalm 96. Now, to be clear, even though worship is the, I'm talking about congregational worship. Certainly some of these principles apply to your personal worship. Uh, when you're at home and you and your Bible and you pray and you sing or whatever, uh, there's certainly some merit to be said. It's kind of in vogue today to say everything is an act of worship. And, and to some degree that can be true. All right, you can, uh, you can uh, clean pipes if you're a plumber to the glory of God. You can change a diaper as a mom or a dad for the glory of God. But what we're talking about today is congregational worship, talking about specific, intentional, collective, intentional ascription of worth to God. And so Psalms is a great uh, place to start. It's 150 chapters. It was basically a Hebrew songbook. And they used this. There were songs of lament. There were songs of frustration. There were songs of, it, was, it runs the gamut of human emotion, but it also is a book of praise. So I'm going to walk through this a little bit and uh, bring out a few things, explain it, and then apply it at the end. All right. So here's what it says. It says, oh, sing to the Lord. Worship does not equate to singing. But part of worship is singing. It's not the whole thing, but it is part of it. It's an important part of it. And it says, sing to the Lord. Not even about the Lord. It says, sing to the Lord. And it says, a new song, a new song, a new song. Man, thank God for guys like William Cowper, 
Charles Wesley, thank God for them. But you know what? God says, I want to hear some new stuff too. I want to hear some stuff that I'm writing in your heart that is expressed in praise as well. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Bless is the idea. It's kind of a synonym of worship. It means to speak well of. It means to speak well of. It's like, that God is awesome. That's blessing his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory. Glory uh, is uh, evidence that God is at work. It's evidence that God is, God is invisible, but uh, is, is evidence is him at work, doing what only God can do, changing a life, restoring a marriage, these kinds of things. Declare that among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord. Why do you do it? Why do we, why do, we do this? Because God's great. That's what the psalmist is saying. Well, I don't really feel it. That, the question is not how we really feel. The question is, is God worthy of the praise? That's what he's saying. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared or reverenced above all gods. And, and last verse we're going to deal with uh, for a while. For all the gods of the peoples, and I've got to get this. What you're going to see the psalmist do is recognize that everybody worships. I don't care if you've never been to church before, if your uncle never has darkened the door of a church, we all worship. And what he's recognizing here is we either worship the true God or we worship idols is what the Bible says is anything other than God. And he says, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Now, worthless, does it, worthless means empty. It means in vain. It means lack of satisfaction. It means every time I go down that road, I don't like what I find down that road, but I still go down that road all the time because it beckons me, it calls me, but it says in contrast, but the Lord, the Lord made the heavens. All right, let's kind of unpack a little bit of this uh, just for a second. Uh, Let me again reiterate this point is you are a worshiper, I am a worshiper. I am a worshiper, you are a worshiper. Anthropologists have recognized that you can't go anywhere in the world without seeing worship. Wherever you go, you do see worship. It's hardwired into you. You were made for that. It's in your DNA. Now, it looks different in different parts, but you are a worshiper. Everybody worships. And if we don't worship God, then we're going to end up worshiping something anyway. Romans chapter 1, which is sort of the picture of idolatry, Romans chapter 1 says if we don't worship the creator, what we'll do is we'll start worshiping the creation and make that an idol, make that something we worship. But don't miss it. You and I, we will worship. Why? Because worship's about value. Worship's about, this is what I value the most. This person, this thing, this relationship, it is what matters most to me. This has the highest value in my life. You're like, well, what is it? What is it? How do I know what is the most high value? How do I know? I don't want to worship something fake. Here's how you, here's how you know. Because that thing could be a relationship. It could be a dream, a position, status, something you own, a job, anything like that. Uh, Whatever name you put on it, this thing is what you've concluded in your heart. It is worth the most to you. And whatever it is that you said this is worth the most to me, you worship. That's what you do. Uh, Worship uh, directed towards something that is not worthy, the Bible calls idolatry. Everybody says the root of pride, or the, uh, pride is the root of all sin. That's really not the case. Idolatry is the most mentioned sin in the whole Bible. It's the root of all the other ones. It's what God warns you about in number one of the the Ten Commandments. The number one commandment is, listen, don't worship worthless stuff, all right? Worship me. Don't worship worthless stuff. 
When Jesus was asked, what is the number one commandment? What is the thing that sums up all the rest? And he says, it's a worship deal. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we look at a text like this, we've got to understand you and I do worship. And you're like, again, I don't know what I worship. How do you find that out? You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you're going to find a, a throne. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. And listen to me, whoever is on that throne is what you or who you worship. That's how you find out what it is. Everybody in here, you got a throne. You got a throne in your heart. And whoever on that throne, that is who you're technically worshiping. And God says, I want you to worship me. And you're like, that is so egotistical. I mean, what, what is God, 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 who else would you have God worship? Okay. Who else would you have God worship? God invites us to worship him. He invites us. He says, come in here, get to the most joy inducing soul satisfying thing that you can ever have. That's why the psalmist later would say, in your presence is fullness of joy. And it's not because God lacks praise, loved one. Please hear me on this. It's not because God is up there going, man, I wish I had some worshipers. God has got tons of worshipers, tons. Revelation chapter four says that there's a group of angels that their only job 24 hours a day, seven days a week is to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. That's all they say. You're like, what's your job description? Well, I sing. What do you do? What else do you do? That's what I do. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You, uh, the psalmist also says the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So the most loving thing that he can do is say, I want you to worship me. And so he gives us a bunch of instruction. In this text, he says, sing to me, bless me, speak well of me, tell of my salvation, declare my glory. I am greatly to be praised. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Worship the Lord. All those things. Now this week, I was sitting there going, man, we should be the, like the best worshipers. Because here we are, thousands of years previous to this, they didn't know anything about the cross. They didn't know anything about redemption. Now they had little pictures. They had little sonograms saying this is kind of what it's going to be like. They could go over to Psalm 22 and read about somebody who's a suffering servant, but they didn't know what you and I know. And please hear me on this. One of the most worshipful things you can understand is what John the Baptist said. The whole thing about worship is minimization of self, maximization of God, magnification of God. It's not about me, it's about God. It's why John the Baptist, when they came and said, hey, don't you know that Jesus is like taking a bunch of these people that used to follow you are now following him? Like, aren't you jealous? There's somebody about following some other preacher. And what did he say? He says, I must decrease, he must increase. That is worship. I have a little bit less of me, more of him. If you're like, what do I do in worship? Less of me, more of him. And as a gospel generation, we ought to understand that better than they do. Think about the lady at the well, the woman at the well, John 4. It's sort of like worship concentrate. There's probably more in that. I think worship, the word worship is mentioned like 16 times just in John 4. And what a picture of the gospel. Remember when she's talking about worship and she wants to change it? And he's like, go get your husband. And she's like, I, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're sleeping with now is not your husband. And she's like, I didn't like the song. No, that, she tried to change the subject. And here's the beautiful point. The beautiful point is not that you and I are good people who like going to church and singing songs. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you and I are rebellious, glory thieves, rule breakers, and God knows that and loves us still. It's the fact that we understand that Jesus did live the life we were supposed to live, then died in our place. 
And when we come to worship, what we do is we look into that yawning chasm of the difference between us and Jesus and yet rejoice in the fact he has bridged that gap so you and I should be able to sing far better than somebody like David writing some psalm. But amazingly, sometimes that even the longer you're a Christian, listen to me, the longer you're a Christian, this is what is so convicting. I've been a Christian like 20, 29 years. I still remember the first time I ever, not growing up in church, I remember sitting out there with a hymn book reading a, what was that? Uh, man, there was this one hymn that I was reading. And I was just, I was sitting on a, I was just in tears going, this is amazing. You know what I can do now? Now because I'm a professional Christian, I can read that and even sing that hymn and the eyes can stay amazingly dry. I'm, I know all this stuff now and it ought to have more of an impact. I ought to be a better worshiper than I was then. And so mature Christian. Don't assume just because you know more, you're a better worshiper. Some of the best worshipers in our room today, some of the best worshipers at our church today, they've been saved like three, they've been saved like three months. Young man I met who got saved in the first service. After the service, he's just weeping like a baby. You know why? Because he's a worshiper. That's why. Because he's, he's, he's 10 minutes old in the Lord, and yet he's so broken and so grateful over what God has done. And so God invites us to worship. And so you're like, what is that? I got to have a definition. Well, if you're a note taker, which I would encourage you to, because you get more reward in heaven if you take notes. But here's, a, here's the definition. Here's the definition. And um, I looked at like 20 definitions this week. So this is kind of a compilation of them all. It is my head. God doesn't want you to check your intellect at the door. All right. Mentally, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right. Worship the Lord in what? Spirit and in truth. All right, so, all right, it's mental. It's mental. It's thinking. What am I singing? What am I listening to? It's my head and my heart. My heart is, that's where we kind of get our word passionately worship. My heart, my heart, my emotions. You're like, I don't want to show my emotions. I understand. Believe me, I'm there with you. But just, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. And my hands, my hands, what do I do? It's not just what I do when I leave here, but it's also physically. What am I doing physically in worship? There are so many physical commands in corporate worship. And we'll get to those. That'll, that'll push out of your comfort zone just a little bit. It's responding to who God is. God invites, we respond. It's responding to who God is and what God has done. Who God is, his character, what he's done, his gospel, those things. So that's a definition of what it is. And so let me break that down just a little bit, and then we're going to kind of get into how do we... Let me do the back end first and then the front end last. But who he is, verse 4, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. That's really what worship is. Worship is me recognizing the greatness, the glory, the majesty, the graciousness, the patience, the long-suffering. It's me recognizing God as God. And listen, when God is not greatly praised and when our worship is not real big, it's not because God is not real big, it's because in my mind I've created all of a sudden God is this little itty bitty God in my heart and in my life. Because listen, we, we are enthusiastic about what we think is great. Now let me just, let me, here's a confession time. I'll give you an example. All right, don't judge me, but up until this point, and I try, I'm going I'm to rectify this in the next week or two, but up until this point I have yet to actually eat at Biscuit Head, all right? I hadn't eaten there yet, 
But for months now, every time you go up and down Hendersonville Road and see that one coming to South Asheville, all I'd hear is all our staff and all of our people, Biscuit Head is coming! Biscuit Head is coming! I'm like, I'd never eat. Is it good? Is it good? They got cat head biscuits. I'm like, that's why I'm not going there. But it's not like, that is a good, they're like, the food is awesome. It's carbolicious. It's so amazing. You got to eat there when it opens. I mean, there's just, I didn't have to prime that pump. I didn't have to say, what do you think about Biscuit Head? All I had to do is just, just even mention the name. And they're like, it's all about Biscuit Head. Why? Because, because they're excited about it. And what we're excited about is we are enthusiastic about it. And what we're enthusiastic about, we share. And so the psalmist is saying, great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. He is the one that's like, man, I ought to be enthusiastic about that. The Lord made the heavens. He said the Lord made the heavens. Now check this out. This is uh, for some of you nerds that are like, I want to hear some statistics. Um, you know, our solar system, the diameter, because here's what he says. He's, he's, he's talking about creation. It says it's the Lord that made the heavens. So he's saying part of the way that you can worship is realizing that God actually created stuff. And I always joke about the fact that we, we of all people who live in the most beautiful part of the country, it ought not be hard. All you got to do is go to DuPont Forest or go to Triple Falls or Rainbow, whatever that deal. It's like, yes, there is a God that is awesome. But if not, then you could just, uh, the solar system is 7.5 billion miles in diameter. 7.5 billion miles, that's just our solar system. If you go 65 miles an hour in a car, or if you're from Florida, you go 45 miles an hour in a car, but it's 65 miles an hour, it would take you 13,000 years to get across our solar system. That's how big God is. And there's 100 billion solar systems in our galaxy. And there are 100 and 50 billion galaxies. And he's saying, listen, God stepped out on the front porch of heaven and made that, and he said, he should be feared. He should be worshiped. You're like, what has he done? Now, verse two says, tell of his salvation. The psalmist is probably talking about Israel being rescued out of the slavery of Egypt and then brought into the promised land. So they're taken out of slavery, brought into freedom. freedom. But I'm like, that's a great picture of the gospel. Okay, you and I were slaves to sin, slaved ourselves. And then God brought us into freedom, the freedom in Jesus, all right? It sounds a lot like the gospel. So listen to me on this, lean in a little bit. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, through him, It's Jesus. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what happens is when you come into worship, when you come into worship, you got all these greeters. They're opening the door, giving you a bulletin. Welcome to church. They're in the parking lot. Glad you're here. Come into worship. And while they do a great job, listen, you got to understand Jesus is the one actually holding the door. He's holding the door and said, you want to worship a great and glorious God? I provided the way. I'm holding the door. I actually am the door. I'm the door. And you know what's holding the door? Is nail-pierced hands. That's who's holding the door open for you, saying, come in here. I've made a way. You need to come and get the most soul-satisfying, most joy-inducing thing you can possibly do, and that is get in the presence of Almighty God. And he's inviting us, all ye who are tired and just beat down with religion, come in here and worship a great God. All you who are defeated, all you who are wayward, come and worship a great and glorious God. All you who are rebellious, 
come and worship a great, glorious, and forgiving God. All you who are ashamed and you can't even lift your head, you come and worship a God who actually says he is the lifter of your head. Come and worship a God who says in him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sin. Those that don't have any joy, those that hadn't cried a tear in years, those that are distracted, come and worship a great God. That's God's invitation. So what do I do? What's my job? What's my job? Your job, my job is to participate. That's my job. My job is to participate. I, 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 I'll say it again. I love the worship culture that God is moving. The last four or five years, our worship culture at our church has changed, and I love the direction that it's going, the trajectory that it is going. We're not where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be. All right, so that's, that's, we're awesome, but I've learned a lot. Our praise leaders have learned a lot. Our worship leaders have learned a ton as we just got into God's word. What actually is worship? But you got to understand, loved ones, worship is a verb. It's a verb. Just looking in this text, much less all the other ones, worship is something I do. It's not something I watch. I know that's counterculture. We are a, it is a, worship is a participation activity in a spectator culture. In a place where we are geared to a break every seven minutes, God says, you come and you lift up your eyes and you worship me. Like, what does that even look like? Well, here's just a few of the verbs. Sing, sing, bless, tell, ascribe, bring an offering, tremble, shout, clap your hands, bow down, lift up your heads, meditate on the truth, cast down your idols, make a loud noise, lift up your hands, clash the cymbals, tell the nations. That, that's a lot of stuff. All right, so here's where I'm going to push in on you, and then we're going to practice. You're like, man, my first 20 minutes in here was lame. I did not, I was distracted. I was checking March Madness. I was, I just, I was so distracted. You're going to get a redo, right? You're going to get a mulligan. But here's the idea. Uh, we got to know what we're doing. It's participation. It's participation. It's not personality. Understand that? It's about participating. It's not about your personality. And so think about what the definition is. I'm going to respond to God who he is and what he's done with my head, my heart, and my, and my hands. So let me, put it, let me put it in a way to, to uh, challenge us a little bit. The first one is worshiping God with my head. Focus mentally. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying it's essential. There's so many things that try to draw your attention away. Confession time. I am the worst. I have the worst case of worship, ADD, of anybody in this room. Seriously, I do. I was, there's like four things God said, practice it, practice it, practice it, practice it before you preach it, before you preach it, practice it. One of them was like, focus on the worship because honestly, I don't. I, I sit there sometimes and I'm a, a thought will come to mind and I'll write it down in the sermon or I'll look up and see a pixelation on the screen. It'll tick me off. I'm like, why is that stupid technology? I mean, just, I'm thinking all this stuff or I'll see somebody and they'll, they'll, they'll miss the note or they'll miss the transition or whatever. And I'm like, make a note of that, make a note of that. I mean, people hate to sit by me in worship, but that day is done. You know why? Because it's not about looking around and seeing all this stuff. It's about me being a worshiper, not just a consumer but being a producer of worship. You understand what I'm saying? How do I be a contributor to worship, not just a consumer of worship? And so part of it is mentally, I gotta, I gotta focus, I gotta love God with my mind. I gotta constantly round up, chasing down, drifting thoughts, focusing back on God over and over and over again. This, uh, this, this was convicting. I, don't you hate it when you're talking to somebody 
um, you, don't you hate, I hate it when I'm talking to somebody and they're not looking at me or they're looking at me, but then they're looking at, hey, Joe, coming back to me, you know, I'm pouring my heart out to him. Hey, so, hey, good to see you, brother. You know, it's like, stop it, okay? Stop that. I don't do that, all right? I'm just saying, I, don't you feel like doing that? What that's telling you is that they're not locked in on you. They're thinking about a hundred other things. Well, those of you, okay, ladies, I'm, I'm just, let me make a general deal. Uh, how awesome do you feel, ladies, when your man takes you out to eat at some place and the whole time he, situate, he sits in a seat with full knowledge that the seat he's sitting in is the one that has the best view of the television in the bar, all right? How awesome does that make you feel when he is looking over your shoulder at ESPN, I mean, raise your hand if that makes you feel like awesome when that happens. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody. It's why, but how does God feel when we're at worship and we're singing a song about God and we're like anything but that, anything but him? Okay, let that challenge us, all right? I gotta focus mentally, all right? How do you do that? There's some ways to, some of it's just, I gotta it'd be intentional about it. Some of it's preparing in this book, there's a whole group of psalms. This is not one of them. There's a whole group of psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And what they would do is they would sing these songs as they journeyed up to Jerusalem or up to the temple. And the songs were, the songs were preparation to get them in the right mindset so that when they got to the temple and when they got to church, they would be prepared to actually worship God. And so some stuff you and I can do, I and mean, obviously singing something on the way here is great as well, but here's some real pragmatic ones. If you've got small kids, man, lay the clothes out the night before. Man, avoid that fight in the morning about getting little junior into his Oshkosh, bagosh, whatever, okay? Just fight, just, this is what we're wearing the night before. It's all laid out. I got even the little breakfast stuff laid out, all that stuff. Why? It's like, that's just not even very spiritual, man. It's very spiritual. It is. It's very spiritual. It's like, I am preparing to worship God Almighty. Um, read the text. All right, read the text. Most of the time, the text gets out on social media. The worship set oftentimes goes out on social media or Facebook. Look at the actual songs you're going to sing. Think about them so that when you get there, you're like, oh, I just never even heard of that before. All right, but mentally go there. I'll give you one example here in about a month because some songs, it's hard sometimes to find really doctrinally sound songs that also sound really good. All right, we, there's, it's hard. I mean, there's a few that are putting some out. We're blessed right now because some of our young folks, they have actually written some very, very good songs. A couple of them are going to drop nationally in May. All right, but I'll get, let, me just, let me read you one bridge to one of the songs for the example of if you think about it, you can just prepare your heart for worship just thinking about the songs even before you sing them. There's one of them that is called In Our Place. We've sung it a few times in here. Again, it'll drop in May. We'll give you the heads up on that. But here's some of the song of it. The first verse says, there is a redeemer who gives the captives liberty. There's a redeemer who gives the captives liberty. I mean, you could sit in that for hours. There's a redeemer. Redeemer means somebody who bought somebody back. It's a picture of buying a slave off an auction block. It's a picture of, you know what? I, I bought somebody. They couldn't do anything for me, but I bought them off. That's a picture of what Jesus did. Jesus bought me. He paid the price for me. And as I just think about, God, I've got to go meet with my Redeemer and all my brothers and sisters who've been redeemed as well. I got liberty, not perfection, but I got liberty. God has freed me to live forever. I mean, you can just go on forever. 
And here's the bridge. The bridge is it is finished. It is finished. Your death for our death. Jesus in my place. I mean, you could go there for, God, thank you. Just pray. God, thank you for dying in my place. And when I sing that song here in a minute, when I sing that song, I want to sing it with such gusto and fervency and gratitude that you're up there going, that's my daughter. She knows what I did for her. That's preparation. That's just preparing for worship. So part of it is right here. All right, we're going to go a little bit more. It's grow emotionally. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. That's your seat of emotions, your heart and soul. Now, I know emotions are kind of a weird deal. I know if you're new here, you're like, where are you going with this? Where are you going with this? Let me put this out, um, make a couple of obvious observations. Uh, there's a lot of emotion in the worship psalms. Even in Psalm 96, you've got fear, you've got gladness, and you've got joy just in one psalm. Other places you've got bowing down other places you've got tears other places you've got all you've got the gamut of emotions i will say the dominant one in the book of psalms is joy it's joy it's not the only one but it's the dominant one it's like most of our songs are joyful songs not because of what we've done or not because life is awesome it's because jesus is good and jesus has bought me with a price that's why we sing those songs but emotion does play a part in worship it plays a part in any personal relationship you have I mean, again, let me just, let me use the marriage analogy again, be the last marriage analogy I use, but those of you, uh, uh, ladies, how would you feel if your husband came up to you on your anniversary and you're like, well, I'd just be glad he remembered, but I'm just saying, what if he came up to you on your anniversary and just in a very a monotone, very straight line voice, like, honey, today's our anniversary. Happy anniversary. Here are some flowers for you. I love you. And walk back here. <laughs> that would not fly at the Frank household. I can promise you that. That is not flying. You know why? Because my wife, just like your wife, wants to know more than that she's just a duty. Here, here are my flowers. I obliged my duty. My wife wants to know not just that she's a duty, she wants to know that she is my delight, that I delight in her, that she is a joy, that I would do it all over again. And so when you and I sing to God, there's a lot of emotions that are in the Psalms. I can promise you, I've looked at all of them. What is not in there is looking cool with your hands and your arms folded with a cup of coffee in your hand, looking like you're bored to tears. That's never in the Psalms. It's not in there. I've looked. It's not, there's not one time in there. There's a bunch of other ones, but that one's not in there. And uh, I would say this, uh, some of you are like, well, I don't feel like doing those things because I, I don't feel those, so I don't, I don't. I don't do them. It's, it's, not, it's not authentic. It's not authentic. And you told, us to, to be, you told us to be authentic a couple of weeks ago. And there's some truth to that. You don't want to come in here. Some of you came in here leaping and some of you came in here limping today. All things in between. And so you don't want to just put on the happy Christian little smiley face. But, it, but on the other hand, you don't worship because you feel like worshiping. You worship because God's worthy of giving worth too. He's worthy of ascribing worth. He's worthy of recognizing how awesome he is. We actually, for our worship leaders are never allowed to simply say, how do y'all feel today? It's not because it's necessarily wrong, but that's not even the context. How you feel today to some degree is irrelevant to how awesome God is. And secondly, have you ever noticed that sometimes, well, here's what, here's what the, I don't even know who would be the psychologist, I guess, would say this. But, I mean, you can see it in the Bible. You can see that God made us a physical and spiritual, and they're, they're wrapped up together. All right? I think it's psychologists. They call it psychosomatic unity. 
What it basically means is that your physical does affect your spiritual and your emotional. And that's pretty patently obvious. If you stayed up till four in the morning with a crying baby or watching a late, 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 late movie or whatever, and then you try to make it to worship and you're probably dozing off now. Why? Because you're like, man, I got three hours of sleep last night. So your physical is affecting your spiritual and your emotional in the same way. Sometimes doing something, even though you're quote, quote, not feeling it quite yet, actually ends up bringing the emotions along as the caboose. So for example, like, you know what? When I get on my knees like this, or if I get on my face like this before God and pray, that doesn't make me humble. What happens is, amazingly, when I will get on my knees or on my face before God for any length of time, at some point, it actually helps me with humility and dependence and brokenness. Why? Because my physical is matching up with at least where I want my heart to go. Now, again, I understand that we came from different places. It's not right to say this guy ought to worship the same way as this person. But what I'm saying is that when you are excited and you're grateful and you're, you're enthused about something, it will show almost from the overflow. Example, last night, I mean, some of you are like, you got to use it in a sermon. Of course, I will use it in a sermon. But last night, I'm watching. I got home just for the second half of the Texas Tech Red Raiders and the Elite Eight last night. And it's, you know, that's a big deal. Some of you North Carolina guys, I mean, you all are like, this is, this is, every, this is every year. <laughs> Not this year. All right. So um, it's... <laughs> So some of you, the only way you're going to worship is if Duke loses this afternoon. That's the only way, that's the only way you're going to get there. But for us guys like the Red Raiders, this is like brand new territory. So when he hit like the clinching, there's like the clinching block and then the clinching three, all by myself, me and dogs, Lori's coming back in town tonight. He hits the three. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dogs are like, what, what, what are you doing? And when I was just... I was bought in. I'm excited about what was going on there. Now, those of you that are like, I'm a stoic and I don't really show my emotions, I just push in on that a little bit. I'm not, because of some of my brokenness, I'm probably the most, I'm as flatlined as anybody in this room. I don't say that as, I say that actually to my shame and my unhealth in that. And I'm getting healthier, showing emotion. I'm the ISTJ, I'm the eight, all that stuff. I told you one time, my wife and I were having an intense disagreement. And she said, uh, she said, you, your emotions are just like that German shepherd you love so much. <laughs> Honest, I didn't say it, but in my heart, I was like, is that a compliment? I mean, I, I actually took that, I was like. That's what I'm trying to be. But the whole point was, I'm not saying you got to be super weepy and you're made up differently and your personality is different, but you redline, you try to red, I honestly do not think anybody in here is going to get up to heaven and you see God almighty and him rebuke you for being too enthusiastic in church. I just don't, now you don't do anything to draw attention to yourself. All right. We're it's not about you, so you don't do anything to draw attention to yourself. We do things orderly. There's some guidelines in the scriptures, but the bottom line is this. I don't think God's going to rebuke anybody and say, you were way too fired up, way too fired up down there. You sang way too loud. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. So part of it is emotional, part of it is mental. And here's this last one. And this is, uh, okay, this is engaged physically. This is going to push a lot of us. This pushes me. But what you do see in the Bible, in the worship things, are not just suggestions or opinions to physically worship God. You actually see commands, imperatives. 
It's like, I'm God, you're not. This is the way that I want you to worship, all right? Now, again, uh, Psalm 96 mainly focuses on the voice because it talks about singing and declaring and telling and blessing. But there's a lot of other ones that have a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, for example, it says, clap, clap your hands. Clap your hands. I mean, the Bible says numerous times, clap your hands, O ye people, rejoice in the God of triumph. You know, it's like, remember that song? It's like, clap your hands. Like, I don't think you ought to clap in church. Well, you're wrong. You're just wrong, all right? I, we got God saying, clap your hands. We got you saying, I don't like to clap my hands. Okay, all those in favor saying, let's take God's, let's take God's opinion, raise your hand, okay? All right, so, all right, while we're there, let's look at Some of you are like, I'm uncomfortable raising my hands in church. I'm uncomfortable. All the, if you're comfortable raising your hand in church, put your hand up. Okay. Okay. If you're not comfortable raising your hand in church, raise your, just kidding. Just trying to, trying to see, trying to see. Cause it does say, actually you, you use your hands. Part of it, you raise your hands, you lift your hands, uh, you bow down. Here's one. You can actually worship God. Here's another thing God showed me. Well, you know what I do? To try to, to try to eliminate the ADD of worship that I've got, I close my eyes. And God, this week, God's like, why, why do you do that? You know, there's a lot of things the Bible says about using your eyes in worship, and the only one that he doesn't say that I can read, he never says, close your eyes. He never says, close your eyes. Why would you close your eyes? He doesn't. He says, he says, like, open your eyes, lift up your eyes to the hills, and see how awesome I am. Bow down. Here in a few minutes, some of us need to come to this altar and bow down and say, you know what? Bottom line is, there's a throne in my heart. There's an altar there. And if I follow him, it shows who I worship and it's not been you. It says, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. That's why most of our songs are to the Lord. Now, why? Because God's listening. We're praying that God is present here. Like, I don't like those songs. I don't like those songs. I want to sing the old songs. Let me be careful. Old songs can be great. Listen, they can be. Very, very, very grateful for guys, again, like Isaac Watson, Charles Wesley, and Cowper, and all those guys. I, that's, I mean, thankful for them, and we do those at times. But listen to me, I don't see, and this is not meant to be jokey, I, but I don't see any there things where it says, sing to me an old song. Sing to me an old song. But numerous times, including this text, it says, sing to me a new song. You're like, well, that doesn't mean new. That's got to be something in the Hebrew that doesn't. I looked it up. It means new. It means fresh. It means current. It means recent. It means sing to me something out of your own heart. Sing to me a new song. And so uh, you're like, well, I don't, I don't like the style. I don't like the style. And again, let me uh, say something we say in starting point all the time. That's fine to not like a certain style. I don't like certain styles, but just understand that's a preference and not a conviction. Or it's a preference, not a biblical principle. The Bible does not ever talk about a particular style of music that God likes. I mean, how many churches have been split around our country because of the quote-unquote worship wars, and it's all about style. This is the kind of music that honors God. There is no place where he says, this is the style that I like. There's a lot of places where our lyrics, your lyrics can be dishonoring to God. But we don't know what kind of music God likes, the style he likes. There's no place. And he had plenty of opportunity. I would think if it was that important to him, he would have chosen to put it down somewhere and he chose not to. We don't know if God likes reggae, okay? We don't know if God, God could like reggae. You're like, he could not. He could. He could like it. Could not. Could. He could, he could, he could, he could like it. We, do, we, don't, we don't know. Let me give you a couple more things there just to make you email me about. Psalm 47 says this. Psalm 47 says, listen to me, this is the last one, and then we're going to practice, all right? Psalm 47, among many other ones, says, shout, shout. See, there's a difference between talking and shouting. 
This is talking. This is shouting. And here's what he says. Shout with loud songs of praise. Apparently, in worship, volume matters. Apparently it does. Because he repeats it over and over again. Now, a couple of things about that. Obviously, it's not going to be appropriate if there's like a soft a cappella gentle song with a guitar for you to... No! That's, there's some t- you don't do that, all right? That's, that's not. And it's just, uh, you wouldn't do that in a soft, tender moment. You don't do that. Those are a lot of times like our number four songs. Sometimes our four songs go up as well. But it also, how inappropriate would it be to be singing some song of celebration and not sing it with some enthusiasm and gusto and all that you've got. Listen, there's not a worse singer in the room. I'm not saying this to be falsely humble. There's not a worse singer in this room than me. There really is not. I mean, really is not. I could tell you stories about those sound people like recording me just during this. When I start to sing, sometime they cut my mic off, but they record it just for their own little jollies back there so they can listen to me like butcher a song. But it's not a matter because you know what? I'm not singing for those guys back there, okay? They're not going to be with us much longer anyway, so we're not even singing for them. But the whole idea is this. Uh, you're like, it's, it's, it's too loud. It's too loud. It's too loud. Now, understand too loud. Just hear me out on this one. It's too loud. It's too First of all, that's probably a generational thing. It's probably a generational thing. We have people all over the gamut. I like it louder. I don't like it loud, but here's some actual facts, all right? Because that depends on the culture you grew up in and your generations and all this kind of stuff, all right? We typically run at about 95 dB, peak at about 98. If you think it's too loud, never go to the movies. The movies run at about 104, 105, okay? Uh, don't ever go to a Gaither concert because these things run about 106, okay? Um, don't ever go to a football game, all right, because uh, at least a pro football game, the loudest recorded crowd noise actually happened a few years ago with the Seattle Seahawks on a Monday night football game, and they were playing on Monday night football. The crowd noise was 137 dB. 140 is a jet engine, just so you know, okay? And I'm going, what? You got people, you got people worshiping in Seattle at 100, because that's what they're doing. They're ascribing worth to a football team. You're worth this, you're worth 137 dB, and they outshot, they, out, they outshot the saints of God half the time. Now, we're not doing 137 dB in here again. We don't, we don't, we don't, I think my first Easter we did, but other than that, we, we aren't going to do that again. And by the way, we do use decibel counters that go and catch every part of this room, every campus. They do decibel meters, and they're always at or below the recommended specifications at uh, from the manufacturer. I know some of you all have that little decibel reader app on your phone. You're like, hey, I've got a decibel reader and app, but those are not, those are, those are not very good gauges, just so you know. You're laughing, but they actually are not. We have actually the good ones. Those things are not accurate at all. So, what does all this lead us to? I got to use my hands, my voice, my eyes, all, whatever it is, try to push a little bit over the next six or seven minutes out of your comfort zone. Somewhere that we've looked at biblically. I'll tell you for me, I'm, I, I, I still don't know what to do with my hands. I don't know if anybody's with me. I don't know what to do with my hands sometimes. So, you know, what I've, what I've learned is the, you know, he said, I can clap my hands with, great. But then sometime like this, you know, what, what this is basically, this is almost like a, 
I don't have anything in my hands. I bring nothing but myself into worship at all. All my sin, all my junk, this is what I'm bringing. But I was convicted even last night when the three-pointer went in. I was like, yes, yes. And if I can't, if I can't put a hand up when I hear the heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, that's just, that's, that's, that's something's wrong there. So about 2014, we as a church put on a pastor's conference in Baltimore, Maryland. We were asked to put this conference on for thousands and thousands of pastors that came into that, for that conference. And we were asked to put, uh, we were asked to put it on and put the preachers together and put the music together and all that stuff. And so we were thinking, who can we get to actually help us? Because there was multi-generational people uh, that are all from all over the country, all over, out of the country, all ages, young, older, all this kind of stuff. And so there's a guy we picked, his name is Matt Redmond. Now, some of the millennials are like, who is that? I don't know. But like in the 90s and the early 2000s, Matt Redmond probably wrote more worship songs. He was on the front edge of the worship movement, kind of coming out of the worship entertainment or coming out of Christian entertainment into the worship. He was like, he was like the guy. And there's a bunch of them, but I would say this guy is, he is the real deal. Listen to me. When you spend some time praying and listening and watching and you see him around, you're like, I want that guy to be around my people because we took a bunch of volunteers up there, hundreds of volunteers up there. What a, I mean, what a, what a, just a humble, I could tell you stories if we had time. Great humility. It's no wonder God has used him to lead so much stuff. But here's, the story is, there was one song he wrote that came out of his church going through a time when their worship had grown very stale. Their worship had become very consumeristic, maybe like you're struggling with too. It's like, okay, give me the next CD, give me the next song, give me the next thing, give me the next soloist, give me the, uh, that's what I want. Instead of a contributor, all right, they'd become a consumer instead of a producer. And so God convicted their church and they said, all right, for the next, however long it takes for us to get our heart for worship back, we're just going to strip everything away. We're going to strip the sound system away. We're going to take away the drums. We're going to take away basically everything. And it's all just going to be super, 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 super simple. And during the course of that time, uh, he wrote a song that became probably the most iconic worship song ever written that I've ever seen. And that just, it's, it was used countless times and it's called the heart of worship. And this is what he, this is what he wrote. And this is what we're going to transition into in a second. It says, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing, just, this is so good, longing just to bring something that's of worth. This is to God that will bless your heart. Now in the South, we say, well, you know, bless your heart. And we say it in a condescending kind of way. What he's saying is like, I want to bring something to God that would bless. Is that not a, we could actually do something that would bless God. But here's the way the rest of the song goes. He says, I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. And here's the, here's the way, the, I guess, the bridge of the course. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And here's the confession. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you. 